Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Monica Morrow for her take on where we are and where we're headed in management of early breast cancer from the perspective of the surgeon, and she began our conversation by commenting on the relevance of the new biology of breast cancer. We are finally starting to enter the era where we are thinking not only about disease burden in surgery, but about tumor biology and in particular molecular biology. And I think it's becoming increasingly apparent that not only survival, but local control is also very strongly influenced by molecular features of the tumor and the availability of targeted therapy. And I think we see that both in the publication that came from the Harvard group, where in their ERPR positive subset who received, in this case, tamoxifen therapy, five-year rates of local failure were less than 1%. And interestingly, we see the same thing in the mastectomy population. If you look at the Danish breast cancer group trials, post-mastectomy radiotherapy, highest rates of local control in ER-positive women receiving tamoxifen, highest risk of local failure in either triple negative disease or HER2 overexpressing patients in the pre-trastuzumab era. Now, I think the interesting thing about trastuzumab is that buried in those papers in the New England Journal, which didn't get much attention paid to it because the survival effects were so dramatic, is the fact that if you look at local failures in the chemotherapy alone versus the chemotherapy plus trastuzumab, they're halved by the addition of trastuzumab. So I think we're seeing the same effect as we see with tamoxifen, with the aromatase inhibitors, that targeted therapy reduces local failure. And we get that same hint in the stuff from Oncotype DX, where although that profile was developed to predict the risk of distant recurrence, Terry Malmunis did a study looking at prediction of local regional recurrence on the basis of Oncotype DX score and treatment and found the same thing, namely that if you had a low-risk score, you had a lower risk of recurrence, that the addition of tamoxifen substantially decreased local recurrence, but that if you had a high-risk score and you only got tamoxifen, local regional recurrence rates did not go down that much. It was only when you added in chemotherapy. So I think this is an important message for surgeons because it says that it's time to stop obsessing about margins, margins, and only margins and start thinking about the disease in a more biological way. That issue of margins, I know you did a paper recently reviewing that sort of age-old question of what's an adequate margin, but do you think that maybe when you kind of decide what an adequate margin is, you might want to take into account these biologic factors? Yes, I think it's quite possible that an adequate margin might not be the same for all disease subtypes, so that clearly in ERPR-positive women receiving endocrine therapy, local control is really good, and it's hard for me to believe that any margin bigger than tumor not touching ink is important. Now, for triple negative disease, where local recurrence rates are higher, it's tempting to speculate that a bigger negative margin might be important, but the fact that that group still has the highest local recurrence rate after a mastectomy says that may not be true, that it really may be first-sight metastases, not the tumor burden in the breast itself. 
You mentioned Archetype DX, and our patterns of care studies have shown in the last few years great increase in the use of this assay, and really it's gotten integrated into the practice of patients with node-negative tumors pretty extensively. But we're also seeing people increasingly using it in patients with node-positive tumors. And there's just another report on that at San Antonio. Any thoughts? Sure. I think that the principle behind Oncotype DX clearly makes sense for both node-negative and node-positive disease, namely that there are differences in prognosis and that it predicts sensitivity to conventional chemotherapy. I think the problem people have with using it in node-positive disease is that the residual risk of relapse is high enough in most node-positive, and now I'm talking about macrometastases, node-positive breast cancer patients, even after endocrine therapy, that it's hard to say we're not going to treat you. And I think this is a real ethical dilemma because while it's hard to say the best treatment we have still leaves you with a risk of dying that's 20 or 30 or 40 percent, on the other hand saying, so just to make you and me feel better, I'm going to give you some toxic chemotherapy that chances are isn't going to do any good is not a great approach either. So to me, this really does offer the opportunity of saying here is an ideal subset to put into clinical trials where we can say that current therapy is not as effective and we might get an answer more rapidly. Who do you think ideally should be ordering the oncotype, the surgeon or medical oncologist? (laughs) Well, certainly there are lots of medical oncologists who have strong feelings about this. At Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have come to a group agreement that it makes sense for surgeons to order this test to get it in the works more rapidly. And we have a group of patients that we all agree we will order it on who are node negative, estrogen receptor positive women who have tumors that are five millimeters or greater in size and do not overexpress HER2. Unless, of course, the patient is one of those women who says, I don't care how little the benefit is, if it's one in a million, I want chemotherapy, then we don't order the test. Or maybe the reverse. No way I'm taking chemo. The reverse. The patient who says, I'm not going to take chemotherapy, I sometimes find the test helpful in this circumstance because if the test shows a low-risk score everybody can feel good. And if it shows a high risk score, sometimes when confronted with some specific information about her own cancer, women change their mind. Another thing I want to ask you about, going back to your work at Northwestern with Seema Khan, looking at the effect of moving the primary tumor in women with metastatic disease. And I see you just wrote a review article on that topic. Where are we with that issue right now? Well, the stage four disease thing remains remarkably controversial and I think remarkably timely. If you now look at the number of people since Seema and I published that original paper who have looked at this question, there's a list of about 20 studies. And what they show is that approximately 50% of women with metastatic breast cancer actually undergo surgery. Now, some of these are women who are found to have metastatic disease after the operation, so they're very low-volume metastases, but nonetheless, they're having surgery. So we recently published a study from Memorial 
looking at surgery in stage four patients in a very modern era in the time period since we've been using both taxanes and trastuzumab in HER2-positive patients. And we found, perhaps not surprisingly, that the benefit of surgery in stage four disease was confined to patients who had a target, either the estrogen receptor or HER2 overexpression, that in triple negative patients getting conventional chemotherapy, we didn't show a benefit. Now, that was a fairly small exploratory analysis. My colleague Terry King has launched a prospective study, which is a multi-institutional study, which will collect specimens for biomarkers and document in patients with and without surgery in the modern era how much of a problem maintaining local control in stage 4 disease is now that women are living longer. There have been efforts led by CIMACON to get a prospective randomized trial going on for a number of years, and we keep hearing that soon that trial will be forthcoming. In the meantime, I think the approach that I use to patients who present with stage four in an intact primary is surgery is never the first step. They get systemic therapy first. Patients who are resistant, who rapidly progress, aren't going to benefit from surgery, and that avoids an unnecessary operation. In patients who respond, who have low-volume metastatic disease, then I offer surgery as an option, being very clear to tell the patient that we don't know that this is going to be of benefit. And if I do it, I do the whole thing, meaning I not only take out the tumor in the breast with a lumpectomy if that's possible or a mastectomy if it's not, but I also do the axilla. Any guesses in terms of if there's a benefit, what the magnitude is? Well, most of the studies suggest that The magnitude is in the range of 30 to 40 percent, and I would say once you control for the selection bias there, that'll probably knock it down to more like a 20 percent difference. But these are low morbidity operations, and almost 40 percent of women who present with metastatic disease have a T1 or a T2 primary tumor, according to the National Cancer Database information we had, which means a lumpectomy to take that out is a real low morbidity operation. Any thoughts about if there's a benefit, what the mechanism is? Your newer colleague down the hall, Larry Norton, has been talking about the self-seeding hypothesis. And when I spoke to him about this recently, he said, well, maybe this effect of removing the primary metastatic disease sort of ties into that. Can you explain what the self-seeding concept is and whether you think there is a connection? (laughs) It's never wise to argue with Larry. So. So if I truly understand the cell seeding hypothesis, he believes that tumor cells circulate, go back to the breast, recirculate, and act as a source of other metastases. I think that's a theory. It's an intriguing theory. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. I think tied into that is the sort of whole stem cell theory that if stem cells are present in the primary tumor, and are more chemo-resistant, that by leaving that primary tumor there, you increase the likelihood that you're going to keep seeding out into the circulation. So you kill off the sensitive cells, you leave the resistant stem cells there. Any other topics that you generally bring up when you give talks to surgeons, things that have been changing in the last year or so that they should know about? 
Well, I think the other interesting piece of information we saw in the past year had to do with DCIS. And that was the intergroup trial of small DCIS treated by local excision alone. And as you're aware, for many years now, there's been a big controversy about radiotherapy in DCIS. There are four prospective randomized trials that show that the use of radiotherapy reduces local failure by about half. But critics of those trials have always said, well, the margins weren't big enough, you didn't gross in the entire specimen and carefully examine it, you didn't have post-excision mammography. So I think the intergroup trial is very important because that was a study where the average size of DCIS was 7 or 8 millimeters, There was a minimum margin requirement of at least three millimeters, and about half the patients had a centimeter or more. And they did post-excision mammography, and they completely processed the specimen. And the average age of patients in this study was about 60. So this should have been an extremely favorable group of DCIS patients. And in spite of that, for the patients who had high-grade DCIS, average size of only 7 millimeters, at six years of follow-up, they had a local recurrence rate that was about 17%, which most of us would feel is too high considering that half those recurrences are invasive breast cancer. So I think what that says is that for high-grade DCIS, regardless of how small and how big the excision, you need to radiate. And I should add parenthetically that when they looked at margin width, bigger than a centimeter or less than a centimeter, there was absolutely no difference in local recurrence for the high-grade or the low and intermediate-grade group. Now, for the intermediate low-grade group, local recurrence at six years was less, about 7%. So maybe that's a feasible approach in those patients, but what we know historically is that the time to local recurrence in low and intermediate-grade DCIS is longer than in high-grade DCIS, And these are the same kind of results we saw with radiotherapy at five or six years. But if you follow them out through 10 years, local recurrence curves come together. So particularly for younger women where you're concerned about what's going to be happening 10 years later, I think it's premature to conclude we don't need radiation. And I know you and Jay Harris wrote the editorial that went along with that paper. Are there any dissenting points of view from the no radiotherapy group about this paper? I can kind of make some guesses about it, but any flaws in the way the study was done or reasons not to accept the results? Well, there is a letter to the editor that I'm not sure if it got published yet, but if it hasn't, it will be, which was written by Mike Lyos and Mel Silverstein, not surprisingly. And the point that they were emphasizing was there's no survival difference. So why not just excise the patients, and if they locally recur, re-excise them and radiate them? And it's certainly true there is no survival difference. And if you consider that it took a meta-analysis and 15 years of follow-up to see the survival difference in invasive breast cancer from eliminating radiotherapy, we just don't have enough data yet, but I suspect it's there, although it's small. More importantly, to their point of what about just doing excision, watching, and re-excising, and radiating, 
Number one, local recurrence is very traumatic for patients. There's no doubt about that. And if you look at the outcome of women who recur locally after they have not received radiation, only 50% of them go on to reconserve their breast, either because they don't want to, they feel they've tried this, it didn't work, or because technically you can't do a re-lumpectomy and leave a cosmetically acceptable breast. So personally, I think that argument is somewhat flawed. What about the role of partial breast irradiation, specifically in these patients? You look at the downside of radiation therapy, and it's partially mitigated in partial breast irradiation. Well, I think that's an interesting question. We don't have a huge amount of partial breast data in DCIS yet, so most of what I'm going to say relates to invasive breast cancer, which is that in spite of the fact that the partial breast studies have taken the most favorable subset of invasive breast cancer patients, they're still showing local failure rates of 2 or 3% at three years of follow-up. Now, in contrast, if you look at the NSABP data for ER-positive, node-negative women at 10 years of follow-up who receive endocrine therapy, you're seeing that same local failure rate at 10 years with whole breast irradiation. So either all local failures after partial breast irradiation occur early, or we may see a difference in outcome. I think it's too soon to say. DCIS, I think, is trickier because DCIS appears to be not as radiosensitive as invasive breast cancer. And it also has a somewhat different growth pattern with those skip spaces down the duct. So then you get into the issue of how much tissue do you actually need to radiate to be safe and to maintain local control at any rate. And so maybe PBI will work and maybe it won't. I think it's worth testing, certainly. What about outsider protocol setting right now in terms of PBI for you? Well, we're fairly conservative. And outside of a protocol setting, we limit its use to patients who formerly were eligible for the protocol, the arm that filled postmenopausal, node-negative, low-risk women who are no longer accruing to the national study. We do not radiate node-positive women or premenopausal women with PBI off of protocol. I'd like to get your comments on MRI and breast cancer and also the report that came out of the Mayo Clinic suggesting more mastectomies being done may be related to MRI. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I hate to say I told you so, but I started saying this, I think, about 10 years ago now. (laughs) So I think there's a couple things about MRI because there is now a larger and larger body of data emerging. So first of all, the question, there's no doubt you see more cancer with MRI. There was a nice meta-analysis by Husseini in the JCO that shows that on average, you'll pick up about 16% of patients with disease that you didn't otherwise see. So it seems only logical to presume that having that information would either help you get negative margins or decrease unexpected conversion to mastectomy. There are now four published retrospective studies that I'm aware of that have looked at those questions. One of them is a study we reported from Fox Chase. They show no difference in margins. They show no difference in unexpected conversions to mastectomy in women who are selected for breast conservation. But I think the most 
Convincing evidence comes from the prospect of randomized Comus trial from the United Kingdom, in which women who were candidates for breast conservation were randomized to get an MRI or not. And although they immediately converted a number of women in the MRI group to mastectomy because of, quote, more extensive disease. Again, no difference in negative margins and no difference in unexpected conversion to mastectomy. So that leaves us with the only potential benefit of MRI being perhaps an improvement in local control. And for all the reasons we talked about related to tumor biology and local control, I think that's pretty unlikely. There are two retrospective studies, one from Toronto, one from the group at the University of Pennsylvania, that have looked at local control with and without MRI, and again, no difference. So what's the downside? Well, the downside is exactly what you alluded to, increased mastectomy rate, and virtually every study that has looked at this has shown it. The group at Mayo showed it. We showed it in our study at Fox Chase that the odds of mastectomy were doubled. And in some data we presented at San Antonio this year about contralateral prophylactic mastectomy, having an MRI pre-op and needing to have a biopsy in your other breast was as strong a predictor as a family history of breast cancer of having a contralateral prophylactic mastectomy. So it has downsides. What are some of the situations where you utilize MRI? So I use MRI in women who present with axillary metastases with an occult primary. That's a clear indication, I think. I use it in women who are either known BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers or suspicious but untested who choose not to have bilateral mastectomies. And by the way, this whole conversation is about women with cancer. I think screening BRCA mutation carriers is something completely different, and MRI is very appropriate there. I use it in Paget's disease of the nipple, where you don't see any cancer in the breast as another way of screening for that. And I use it in patients who are receiving neoadjuvant therapy to look at response. All of those are problem situations clinically, and here it's being used as a problem-solving tool. What about the issue of axillary node dissection after sentinel node? Well, I think some big news will be coming in these areas in the sense that the American College of Surgeons Clinical Trials Group will present the local control results of the Z11 study, which... Wow, that's an old one. <laughs> yes, well, Z11, so patients with macrometastases, not micrometastases, macrometastases, randomized to axillary dissection versus not. Wow, I thought they didn't have enough patients. Well, the study closed and is not able to meet its primary endpoint, which was to exclude a 5% difference in survival. But... There were still 900 patients randomized into that trial who have now been followed out through about six years. So it tells us what the risk of local failure in the axilla without an axillary dissection for macrometastases is. So that will be presented at the American Surgical Association in April. And what's important about that is this ongoing big debate about doing an axillary dissection for micrometastases. 
So if you show high rates of local control with not doing it for macro Mets, that says something very important for micro Mets. So it sounds like, if I can read between the lines here, that there's going to be a pretty good local control rate without axillary dissection. Well, being as how this is, of course, not available yet, I couldn't say, but one might think that. Interesting. Anything new in terms of breast cancer prevention? It seems like this area got kind of somnolent lately, or maybe I'm missing something. No, unfortunately, I think it's very reasonable to say what happened to breast cancer prevention. Yep. And I think the problem is that we need new drugs or new approaches or something, particularly for the problem of estrogen receptor negative tumors. I mean, we know that SERMs reduce the risk of ER positive tumors, and in spite of all the cries for drugs, um, certainly tamoxifen was never widely adopted for prevention. And I think raloxifene, you know, remains used as an osteoporosis drug with prevention side effects. Let's talk a little bit about your cases, beginning with your 46-year-old woman. Okay, so this first patient is a 46-year-old who presented with a 4-centimeter mass in the upper outer quadrant of a small B-cup breast. By mammography, this was a unicentric lesion. There were no abnormal lymph nodes to see on the mammogram or to feel. A core biopsy showed that this was an ERPR negative HER2 3-plus by immunohistochemistry tumor. Now, the patient had a clear preference for breast conservation, and I think this is an example of an ideal patient for downstaging with neoadjuvant therapy, which includes trastuzumab. We actually did a study where we looked at presenting features of cancers using ERPR and HER2 as surrogates for the intrinsic subtypes using some 6,000 patients in our database. And what we found was that tumors that overexpressed HER2, whether they were HER2-type tumors or luminal B-type tumors, were more likely to be multifocal or multicentric, more likely to have an extensive introductal component, which makes sense when you think about the fact that DCIS is more likely to express HER2 than invasive cancer, more likely to have four or more positive nodes. So features that make it more likely they're going to benefit from downstaging with preoperative treatment. So I talked to this patient about neoadjuvant therapy. And I think the other thing is that we know from the studies that Buzdar has done at the MD Anderson that the addition of trastuzumab to chemotherapy is associated with a pathologic complete response rate of 50 to 60 percent, better than anything we've seen with just conventional combination chemotherapy. So it's a win-win from the view of tumor characteristics and likelihood of response. So this patient was very interested in that approach. You, of course, need to make sure you put a marker clip in the tumor. Otherwise, if the whole thing melts away, you're left without a target. And she, in fact, had what by imaging was a near-complete response. There was some residual uptake both on an MRI as well as some increased density on a mammogram. So we did perform a needle localization lumpectomy on her centered around the clip. 
And I think for surgeons, this is a case after neoadjuvant therapy where you want to make sure you take a decent-sized piece of breast tissue to see what's in there. You do not have to remove the entire volume originally occupied by the tumor. If you could do that, you wouldn't need to waste your time giving neoadjuvant therapy. But you don't want to take out one of these micro-lumpectomies that's the size of a quarter because if you have that buckshot appearance of residual viable tumor, you need to know that because that's a higher risk situation for local recurrence. So this woman got chemotrastuzumab neoadjuvantly? Right. How did she tolerate it, incidentally? Actually, she tolerated it very well. And when we do this, we give the full course of chemo. So we give AC followed by a taxane and trastuzumab to completion of the taxane and then to reassess for surgery. She still had a residual positive node in her axilla. And the other important piece of information, actually, I should add, that came out this year has to do with sentinel node biopsy after neoadjuvant therapy. So there's always been a debate about whether or not that's the appropriate thing to do. We've had studies that show that staging accuracy is actually quite good. But what was lacking was long-term follow-up or even short-term follow-up for local control in patients who did not have an axillary dissection had a negative sentinel node post-neoadjuvant therapy and did not have axillary dissection. And the MD Anderson group presented their data on that subject last year at the American Surgical and showed a very, very low rate of isolated axillary failure and a sentinel node identification rate of about 98%. So I think in experienced hands, this is an appropriate approach for the patient who is clinically node-negative to start with. And the only caveat, again, for surgeons is in these situations where there's a high risk of nodal disease, you have to make sure to put your fingers in the axilla and feel because nodes that are choked with tumor may not take up blue dye or radioisotope. So this woman had the sentinel node after her neoadjuvant therapy? Correct. It was positive? She ended up having a positive sentinel node, so she had a completion axillary dissection. She had no other positive nodes. And what post-operative therapy did she receive? She got radiation to the breast. So as I said, she'll continue her trastuzumab for a total of 12 months. But Sounds like she got her chemo all up front. All the chemo we give up front. Interesting. Speaking about trastuzumab, there's been a lot of debate about the management of patients with small node-negative tumors that are HER2 positive. And I know that there was a report out of the memorial group at the ASCO breast meeting looking, I guess, at your historical series with these patients. There's been a lot of debate about whether or not to use chemo and trastuzumab for patients with these small tumors. What's your take on that? Well, it's funny you bring this up because I was having this discussion with Cliff Huddish yesterday after I got back a pathology report on a patient of mine who had a three millimeter cancer that was HER2 three plus, but was also ER and PR positive about whether or not this patient truly needed chemotherapy. And I think it's really a difficult question. There were two published series, one from the MD Anderson, the other, I believe, from Europe, showing very bad prognosis, astonishingly bad prognosis in very small tumors that overexpressed HER2. And our own data from Memorial shows that in patients with small tumors who were treated with 
trastuzumab and chemotherapy, that basically we've had no relapses. Now, that doesn't mean they wouldn't have been relapse-free if they didn't get it, but it makes it very hard. So whereas I started out being completely opposed to the idea of giving T1A cancers potentially toxic treatment with chemotherapy and trastuzumab, I think there's accumulating data that says that this is bad biology that converts to good if you treat it with targeted therapy. And actually, I meant to ask you before when you mentioned doing the core biopsy on this patient, because I know you all had a paper at San Antonio looking, I guess, at ERPR and HER2 and core biopsies and the accuracy thereof. What did you find there? Part of the reason we did that paper was because it was my very strong feeling that as a surgeon, in order to counsel a patient preoperatively about both her risk of local recurrence after breast-conserving therapy and her risk of contralateral breast cancer, I needed to know what her ERPR and her two were. And there's always been this mix of some people who do it routinely on course, some people who wait for the definitive specimen. So the purpose of this study that our pathology group did was to make sure that there were not substantial discrepancies because of tumor heterogeneity between the two groups. And in reality, there were not. So I think that, to me, this is information I need pre-op. We do this routinely on course. We were talking about oncotype. What about the issue of oncotype in the neoadjuvant situation? Older patient, maybe a larger tumor, even locally advanced, who maybe could handle chemo, but you're maybe not too excited about doing it. There have been some studies looking at oncotype in this situation. Do you think there's any role now or in the future for this, maybe to decide between neoadjuvant chemo and hormones? Yeah, I think that that's a very good point. We in the United States are so wedded to preoperative chemotherapy as opposed to endocrine therapy that in the past, I used to be able to say to patients about pre-op chemotherapy, if you decide to do this, you're not going to be getting any therapy that you wouldn't get anyway. It's just in a different order. In fact, now for patients with ER-positive tumors, that is not true. They might end up getting chemotherapy that in the post-op period for a node-negative patient you wouldn't give. And unfortunately, they're the patients who are least likely to respond in the short duration treatment that we give. So I think it can be selectively helpful. And certainly if you would give neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, which I think is a perfectly appropriate approach, it helps make that decision for you. Let's go on to your second patient, the 60-year-old woman. So this is a sort of classic breast cancer patient, 60-year-old woman presented with a palpable mass discovered by her gynecologist, on mammogram and ultrasound, had what appeared to be a two-centimeter solid mass, had a core biopsy. It showed infiltrating ductal carcinoma, ER strongly positive, PR strongly positive, HER2 negative. She opted for breast conservation, had a lumpectomy, and a sentinel node biopsy with a 2.5-centimeter grade 2 tumor, negative margins, and two sentinel nodes that were free of metastasis. So this is a patient, a healthy 60-year-old, who in the past, based on tumor size criteria, probably would have routinely received chemotherapy, at least in this country. And I think this is an ideal circumstance for the Oncotype DX test, 
because we know when we look at NSABP B14 that the absolute difference from adding chemotherapy to tamoxifen was quite small. It was like 5% overall. And if you then break that down by oncotype score, patients with low-risk scores show no added benefit from chemotherapy. Patients with intermediate risk scores, for that matter, probably don't show any added benefit from chemotherapy, but you could quibble about statistical power. But in the patients who have a high-risk score, there you see a truly meaningful difference between the two curves. So then you can make a strong case to someone for chemotherapy. What was this woman's preconceived notions, if any, about chemo? Well, I think her preconceived notion about chemotherapy was she didn't want it unless she really had to have it. And so I think this helps make that decision. And I think most patients feel that way. In other words, they'll take it if they need it, but they really, really would rather not. Right. If you can really say there's a benefit, and you know, some of this, of course, is related to how both patients and their providers regard risks and benefits. But for me, for a benefit of treating one out of 100 women, it's hard for me to get too enthusiastic about strongly endorsing chemo. So she had an archetype done? So she had an archetype done, and just as one might anticipate, like about 50% of women, she fell into a very low-risk category with these markers where she had, I think, a 4% risk of recurrence over 10 years with endocrine therapy. So she's a happy camper. So she was a happy camper and is on an aromatase inhibitor. Now, is there a size? This tumor was 2.5 centimeters. If it had been 3.5 or 4.5 centimeters, is there a size where you would pull back and say, this is too big to think about holding back on chemo? No, you know, actually, I don't believe that about size. And I think if you look in the validation studies of this test in the multivariable analysis, that this is a better predictor than size. I think when you get to subsets of patients who were probably underrepresented in the study, very young women, unusual tumor types, then you could say that we don't really have strong data. But tumor size, there was a pretty nice spread of size. It's really amazing. As you said, this lady almost for sure would have gotten chemo, I guess, in the early 2000s. There are thousands of women out there right now who've been spared that experience. Yeah, I think this has truly made a difference in the way people practice. Anything you see as you look out in terms of breast cancer research that has you excited that you see coming down the line over the next few years? Well, I think that the whole issue of how we translate this wealth of molecular knowledge into treatment is an exciting thing. It's a sort of frustrating thing because there are so many pathways and so many genes that are upregulated or dysregulated in some way that trying to understand all that is difficult. But I think that that is clearly a leap forward that we've made. We see it now in clinical practice with the oncotype, also with the mammoprint, challenging our very long-held notions about lymph nodes being the be-all and end-all of prognosis with the different subtypes. So I think that whole area and how you apply it to local therapy, to me, is a very interesting thing that we're going to be looking more at in the future.